Dollars to Donuts with your host, Steve Portigal. Well, hi, and welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk to people who lead user research in their organization. I was reading the New York Times today, and I noticed something unusual, although I'm seeing this sort of thing more and more. After the byline, but before the article starts, was some italicized text in square brackets, and it reads, What you need to know to start the day. Get New York Today in your inbox. This is copy that only belongs online, in the app or the website or an email newsletter. Presumably, you would click on something. But I'm looking at the newspaper, the print edition, and I feel like I'm starring in one of those YouTube videos where a toddler is trying in vain to swipe at a magazine and can't figure out why it's not a touchscreen. I see the New York Times making this kind of error in their print edition every few weeks, and it's appalling. It suggests a lack of detail that I don't expect from a high-quality product like the Times. When you get an email that has the wrong name in the salutation, even though we've all done it ourselves, it brings your appreciation down a notch or two. They clearly aren't taking the care that they used to and that we would hope for. It's especially interesting because I remember when the opposite used to be true, when the experience we had online, with news especially, was a not-quite-there translation of a print experience. And now it's flip-flopped. The print edition readers are not the primary customers. The organization has identified a different key user, and it's not me. I can't help but wonder about any of the users we learn about. Are they in a less desirable category or perceived that way because of changes in internal processes or changes in organizational structure? Do we care about their experience or are we making them into what we call edge cases, which is a fancy way of dismissing them? It's hard to imagine the print reader of the New York Times as an edge case, but hey, that's where we are. I want to remind you that I'm looking for ways to be able to keep making this podcast for you. Here's how you can help. You can hire me. I plan and lead user research projects. I coach teams who are working to learn from their customers, and I run training workshops to teach people how to be better at research and analysis. I've got two books you can buy, The Classic Interviewing Users and Doorbell's Danger and Dead Batteries, a book of stories from other researchers about the kinds of things that happen when they go out into the field. You can rate and review this podcast on iTunes, and you can review both books on Amazon. With your support, I can keep doing this podcast for you. Let's get to my interview with Marianne Berkovich. We did this a little differently as part of a live event. We closed out San Francisco's local edition of World Information Architecture Day with our interview live on stage in front of an audience. Then we got off stage and we sat down in a somewhat noisy room and talked a little more to cover some of the things we didn't have time for on stage. We've cleaned it up as best we can, but the audio may be a little bit different from how things normally sound. It was really fun for the two of us to speak on stage, and I hope to have more opportunities to record episodes of the podcast in similar kinds of settings. Anyway, Marianne Berkovich is the head of user research and customer insights at Gluco. She's worked as a consultant and for Google and Adobe. Well, thanks for agreeing to talk with me, Marianne. Why don't we just start by having you introduce yourself? What do you, what do, you do? Where do you work? Tell us about that. My name is Marianne Berkovich, and I am Head of User Research and Consumer Insights at Gluco, and we're an online diabetes management platform. What is an online diabetes management platform? <laughs> That's a great question. So diabetes is a condition that's a lot to do with numbers. You want to keep your blood sugar not too low, not too high. So it's really conducive and lends itself well to technology um, and checking your numbers. 
So we have a, an app for the person with diabetes. They can track all sorts of things there that could affect their blood sugar. And then they can also send that information to their clinician who can further see patterns of, you know, you're high in the mornings and what are we going to do about that? So it's a, a platform that both the clinician can access and look at those things as well as for the patient themselves. And where in the history of this company and its product did you come in to bring in user research? So I am the first user researcher. The company was founded in 2010. I've been there for about a year and a half, and I am learning all sorts of things of what it's like to be first in a healthcare company or a health tech company, and also being the first researcher. So Okay, let's see how easy this is. What are some of the things you're learning, right? What are some of the things you're learning about being the first researcher and working in a in a health uh, tech company? No, no. well, first of all, as a researcher, it it feels very weird to be answering the questions and not asking the questions. So maybe I I answer questions in a way that makes it easier for the researcher to ask the next follow-up question. So, but you know what a great researcher Steve is. So this is showcasing his talent too, right? (laughs) So I think some of the things that, that I'm learning the role of advocacy, that even though there was a need for, hey, it's time for a researcher, we need someone full-time before they were hiring vendors or kind of doing it ad hoc. And so it was time to have somebody who who could, you know, be dedicated and who's trained in this. But at the same time, there's a lot of, I don't want to say, in some cases there was resistance, but I think in a lot of cases it's more of just not knowing what good research looks like. Or part of the reason my title is so long is that people had an impression that, oh, user research is just usability studies. And so... Um, I talked with my manager, and so we put in the and consumer insights, head of user research and consumer insights. So it's like, it's everything. It's going to be going out and doing field visits. It might be surveys. It may be a lot of different things. So kind of help with that advocacy. And I feel like I do spend, I mean, I think as researchers, we always spend a lot of our time in advocacy mode, but I'm not surprised or maybe surprised. It's just taking a lot more of my effort to do that advocacy work of what research is and how it can be used. So I just want to clarify, that's you're advocating for user research. Yeah. So I think even though the company talks about being patient-centered and, and user-centered, that what does that really mean? You know, and I think one of the things that I'm finding also, there's a lot of people who've been in the field for, for a long time and they're like, we understand diabetes. We've been in this for, you know, many, many years. And to have somebody come in, I don't have any experience with diabetes. I don't have diabetes myself to come in with different insights or different ways of doing things. And people are like, we've been there. We know how to do this. And so to advocate for, hey, we went out and talked to some people. We learned this thing that's different and new. And it's, you know, maybe against the conventional wisdom. How might we use this? And and maybe some of that resistance of like, well, we've always done it this way. Or, you know, conventional wisdom says this other thing. So the other part uh, that you were learning was uh, working in healthcare tech as a, it's a new industry for you. So talk about maybe what that's been like. Yeah. So, and before that I was, I did a a fellowship and we were working in the legal space and the legal space, the health tech space are slower moving than just, you know, straight up like consumer products, right? It's like, Hey, let's build something and we'll launch an app and do these things, you know, regulated spaces of like, what is the FDA like? And I had a little bit of background in human factors testing, but you know, we have a product that, that actually got FDA approved, but what does human factors testing look like? How is that different from, uh, just, you know, regular usability testing? What does it mean to understand the whole ecosystem of payers and employers and insurance companies and PDMs and all that type of thing of, you know, moving that needle and and kind of inching things forward when you're in this space that is, can't be disrupted so easily because there's good reasons why these, you know, constraints exist. So it was, the company was about eight years in existence when you joined. So how much, 
How much of that were you building from scratch? How much of it, like, describe a little bit about what you encountered and sort of what you had to build around sort of the tech and regulatory aspects maybe. Yeah, so actually, the, um, luckily, the regulatory aspect is just one part of what we offer. It's the mobile insulin dosing system. So when you start on insulin, you know, how do you come up to, to taking the right dose of um, a certain type of insulin? So the product does a lot more than that. So this was just one small part of it. And it was actually, that was already in the works when I joined. So the app was already out. The website was already out. MIDS was already sort of in progress. So I think for me, it's been a role of a little bit of back to basics of like, let's learn about our users. How are type one... Um, people with type 1 diabetes different from type 2 diabetes. So in fact, something Steve before this, I'm doing an ethnography right now. And so I was in Fresno this week talking to folks with type 1 diabetes. I found Phoenix on, um, on Monday, but it kind of building that basic understanding and actually building personas and really having a deeper understanding rather than like, yeah, yeah, yeah well, we have people in the office who are type 1s, like they know what they need to move beyond that to really um, have some foundational knowledge. And it's causing us to go back and be like, okay, well, is there things in the app that are working the best way? Maybe we can make the clinician experience more efficient. Maybe there's things that we learn when we go to visit a clinician and be like, oh, that's not how we thought that worked. Can we rethink that? So I think it's um, a little bit of back to basics and rethinking certain things rather than to build anything from scratch. So how do you, before you talked about advocacy, which was kind of saying, hey, we need to learn these kinds of things. Uh, but in some ways, doing that reveals the most scary thing of all. Oh, we need to rethink assumptions. And yeah, 10-year-old companies, that's entrenched. So yeah, what happens when the things that you're uncovering are inviting the challenging of established belief structures around the product and what it looks like and, and everything? How are you doing that? I think it uh, it leads to another kind of wrinkle of working in a startup is that we've had a lot of turnover at the leadership level, actually. So the CEO who was the CEO when I joined was not the founder. He was the, the second CEO. And he reached a point where he was like, you know what? I really liked getting the company to where it is now. But now that we're really, it's time to scale and grow things, it's like, that's not what I want to do. So we got a new CEO. We got a new head of product. We got new um, commercialization officer. So all that advocacy I had done and sort of like when we did the type two ethnography when I first started, like all that, that, you know, taking people on the road and showing them and doing these empathy, you know, workshops and all that whoosh, out the window because we've got a whole new, you know, cast of characters now. So I think it was a little bit humbling to have to re sort of create my, my credibility again with it's a whole new cast of characters and a whole new set of people to influence. Luckily, my manager has been a great champion of that. And so I think it's finding ways that we can leverage and sort of maybe it's not the right time for things. So we'll go out and do this research and we have this foundational stuff. We sort of did a big, aha, then those people went away. Can we save that and find another time to sort of bring that to the fore when it might be a little bit more accepted? So I think it's both sort of pushing for it and finding the right time to sort of introduce those things. So what does a manager do to sort of, how does that championing work? I don't know if this is true, but I feel like as a woman, you know, I can say a lot of things. She's also a woman, but like women in general, like it's much more effective if instead of me saying it, I say like, yeah, what Steve said or, you know, what somebody else said. So I think because of that, I think it becomes more effective. So she's not tooting her own horn. I'm not tooting my own horn, but she is sort of pointing to the work that I'm doing. Plus, I think we have different kind of communication styles. And sometimes she can sort of, I'll say a bunch of stuff and she can sort of synthesize it in a really nice way. And it sort of becomes a little bit more impactful that way that like I can spend all my time sort of yelling and screaming, metaphorically speaking. Um, and then she can sort of bring it, you know, home in, in a very succinct way. 
And so part of what she's doing then is also, he talked about finding the right moment, sort of what, what should we be doing to have impact on the organization as the, 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 the layers above us are changing? I don't know. I, I'm wondering about when new people come in, and this is going to vary on a case-by-case basis, but you've, you've gone through this whole series of trying to open people's minds up a little bit and say, hey, things are different. Those people leave, new people come in. Is there an opportunity there? Do those people, what baggage do they have or do they bring in? And I'm not asking you to like slag anybody individually, but just as you see these kinds of changes happen in an organization and you're trying to craft a story that's about how the world really is versus maybe what we hope or assume, what changes when new people come in with or without baggage around what the truth is. Part of it is is um, understanding where people are coming from because I think in my last role, I was at Google for a long time and I think like certain assumptions I made that like everybody knew what user research was and everybody knew this and I kind of got used to that, that that was the norm. Like product managers, of course, know what I do and everybody, you know, knows how this works. And so I had to um, figure out like, oh, okay, I can't assume that people know what these things are or that when I say user research and what you think and your experience with user research, like maybe that was focus groups and they're like, yeah, we did those. That was great. And I was like, okay, great. That's a start. So I kind of know where I'm starting from with folks. So I think that's part of it. Um, And I think also because I am the only researcher and and things move a little bit more slowly, like we did the stuff around type twos and now we're doing the type ones. And so now I'm using all that stuff that I learned last time of like what was effective in terms of running a workshop and getting people to, you know, come on visits with me. And it's like, it's a little bit smoother this time, but we're doing that again this time around. So it seems that having that opportunity to to redo that foundational research has, has resurfaced itself. And so to, to take advantage of that opportunity that it's like, well, let's look at type ones now. There's something here about, um, you know, you've had lots of experience. This is not your first job. You've been in lots of different organizations. You've done lots of research and influenced stakeholders and product teams and, and so on. But it sounds like there's a good measure of learning in this job, which is about how do I do the thing I know how to do to be effective in this context? Yeah, do you, does that ever go away for researchers, do you think? I hope not. I think it's, you know, and I think that that's part of the reason that like, one of the reasons I left Google is like, it took me a while to realize the thing that I was doing here and the things that, that, that you know, kind of really um, I'm passionate about are not things that I could do at Google, but like who leaves Google, right? And so um, I think finding ways to find my path and things that are not sort of the traditional way of moving up in, you know, your a junior researcher, then you're a senior researcher, and then you're a manager and all these things um, to find my own path and, and sort of be okay with that um, and find different ways to to learn in different contexts, like the fellowship that I did with um, uh, Blue Ridge Labs, which is a social impact incubator. And I was, again, you know, the only researcher. And so I got to do more mentoring. And so that was interesting. And so I think finding ways both follow my passion and find ways that like, what does this organization look like? And I think we've probably heard this all before in terms of doing sort of user research or, or bring that lens to our stakeholders or our people that we're working with as well. I think that part never goes away and it's always changing because it's always a different set of people. Is the landscape changing more in a place like Gluco than in a place like Google? That's a good question. I think it's, it's very different. So Google is obviously a very, there's many people. And so I think the dynamics of what it's like to have an organization that big and like, you know, when I joined, like I knew all the researchers and now the, the scale of the each product's team is, is much larger than that. So I think it's a different 
type of, you know, it's a different set of issues. So I think wherever you go, like um, I'm from the East Coast and people ask, so like, well, what's better, East Coast or West Coast or all this stuff? And I'm like, they're different, right? So it's like, I don't think there are things that you can really compare. So for me, it's, um, and this is my first time working in, in a startup. And so I don't have another startup to compare it to. So maybe if I went to a different startup, I can do more of that comparing, contrasting. But in some ways it feels like apples and oranges of a large organization that's established and, you know, is well-funded and, and all that versus a smaller one that, that you know, is working in a very different space. Just hypothetical. Uh, I know we're not supposed to ask, apparently we're supposed to ask uh, hypothetical projection questions and user research. So good thing this is not user research. If you were to look for a job at another startup, um, I'm just thinking about you joining uh, an eight-year-old company. You know, what is there, is there a, a maturity uh, uh, that you would look for or uh, a time span that you would think differently about, you know, in the next stages of your career? I think it's less for me about that. It's more about um, really getting jazzed about the the problem that I'm solving. So for me, diabetes is a, you know is a very big issue. Thirty million people, um, yeah, thirty million people in the U.S. And, and growing, and so that feels like a real meaty issue, and that gets me excited. And so I'm like, even if some days it feels like I'm pushing a boulder uphill, it seems like a worthwhile thing, and that's what gets me up in the morning. And so for me, it's it's much more about that and going in with eyes wide open of like, well, what kind of organization in it is it? And like, okay, do I want to take that on? And, you know, um, and if the answer is yes, then working around those constraints, because that's just the the nature of the beast. You talked before about, um, you know, figuring out the right job title that would describe to the rest of the organization the way that you were going to work. You know, as you, can you say more about sort of what that process was, what those conversations were that, you know, identified an opportunity that helped get you excited that this was something you wanted to do? Well, honestly, I mean, um, I think part of it was naivete that like this was the, I think it was actually the way it was um, posted or sort of written up was manager consumer insights. And I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, I'm not on a ladder. I'm the only one. So it doesn't really matter. And so for me, I was so excited. In fact, um, I was consulting before. And so Gluco was one of my clients and I got hired. And so we crafted the role a little bit, you know, based on what I was doing. And so for me, it was less about negotiating the right title. Um, and in fact, I think only after I joined, um, because I was like, sounds great. Like, it sounds like, you know, um, this is a good fit. Sign me up. And then only when I started um, and I was like, hey, I want to make business card, but I don't really like this manager consumer insights. We had that conversation after I joined. And so that's when my manager started telling me about like, hey, this is some of the, the perceptions because I had gone in very naively also of like, everybody knows what user research is. Like we're in Silicon Valley. Like everybody knows what this is. And so it didn't even really occur to me that that advocacy or the extent of that advocacy that that would need to be done. So what uh, you worked with the, the organization as a consultant and then came in in-house to to kind of lead the effort. What did you, I don't know, what was similar and different about there's, you know, the before and after that transition? So I think one thing is it was very intimidating. I didn't know anything about diabetes. And so I ran my first study and like everybody showed up. And so they were listening in on the call and I'm like, how's this going to go? Like, I hope I don't say anything stupid. And so, you know, I think as a consultant coming up to speed on a different domain very quickly. And I think to me, it, it's about the, those asking those open-ended questions and asking questions in a way that doesn't really matter if you know the domain. I mean, it's certainly much better if you do, but there are ways that you can sort of cover that up. And especially if you're going in with an apprentice mindset and all those types of things, it kind of helps the, the situation along a little bit. So I think for me, that was definitely intimidating to 
not know the domain and have everybody show up. I think another difference as a consultant, and I wasn't a consultant for for very long. It was about a year or so before I decided to take the role with Gluco, but I was very cognizant of how I was spending every single hour and whether it was going to lead to making money or not, because, you know, is this going to generate a lead? Is this going to generate a sale? All those types of questions were very much top of mind. Whereas when you're in-house, I think you can spend the, the sort of hours, you're spending your capital in a different way. You're building relationships and that's that's, you know, kind of how you're sort of making money. Um, and so to me, it's sort of a, a different way that you don't have to be so aware of is every, you know, hour leading to, to money. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, and maybe we could just rewind. I'd love to hear you describe maybe your path. How did you get into this stuff? What, you know, what, what brought you to where we are sitting today? So I was an English major for undergrad. Um, and after I graduated, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I spent a couple of years. I actually, at that point, did work. Um, I was in D.C. and I worked at the National Museum of American Art. We were digitizing the collection. And this is a very long time ago. And so I was actually cleaning up all the photos. And I'm like, eh, I'm not really into this technology thing. My dad also was a computer science professor. I'm like, definitely not into the technology thing. Like, that's stuff that my dad does. Boring. So I spent a couple of years kind of bumming around a little bit. Decided to move out to Denver. Denver, and I started working as a technical writer. And I was working at a financial services company. And so my role was to write the help text for this complex financial software. So I would sit with the developers, they'd explain to me how the, the complex software worked, and I would write it up. And then I had a thought. I'm like, if we just made the software easier to use, I wouldn't have to write anything. <laughs> so that led me to first get a, a certificate in technical communication. And in that, I started kind of, you know, looking around a little bit more and found the whole field of human-centered design and um, human computer interaction. I looked around and I found a program at Carnegie Mellon. And at that point, I had actually switched over to um, Lockheed Martin, which is, is a great role. You can ask me about that in a second. <laughs> Sorry, I just give him the questions to ask. But I, um, it was, you know, I decided that I really needed a, a degree in this thing that just kind of reading books about it whenever wasn't enough. So I decided to go to grad school. And I remember just seeing that description of the master's program. And I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. And like all my life had been leading to that point to be like, that's exactly what I want to do. And having that feeling of like, yep, this is the direction I want to head in. Which master's program? And then keep going. Yes, please. <laughs> it was a, a master's in human computer action at Carnegie Mellon University. So the the role at Lockheed Martin, so I'm old, I'm definitely over 35. And this was, you know, sort of in the olden days. And what we were doing is taking, so you know how we have wildfires and all that type of stuff. So the resources to manage all those things, like sending the air tankers and the trucks and the crews and all that, that was being done by hand. So Lockheed Martin got a contract to turn that into, um, it wasn't even online, it was just a kind of a digital program to do that. So we would interview subject matter experts and I was like a requirements analyst. Like we didn't have roles of like designer, researcher, like that wasn't a thing yet. And so for me, it was like super exciting to solve a, a real problem. We got to actually go to Boulder and like see the command center and, and see some of those things. I um, mean, I really felt like I was making a difference and I knew what this, this was about, but I felt very much at a disadvantage of like, I don't know, what should the icons be? I don't know. Nobody has best practices around icons yet. And so um, it was felt like early days. And that's why I really wanted to go back to school and like learn some stuff because I knew there was a lot that, that had been done already. So you come out of that program and where do you go? Consulting. <laughs> yeah, um, I actually stuck around Pittsburgh for a while and I, again, ran my own consulting thing. It seems I do that to, you know, sort of when I'm in exploration phase or when I'm dating somebody who just started a PhD program and I can't leave Pittsburgh. One, one or the other. 
So the guy I was dating, he was very entrepreneurial and he was like such a, a great cheerleader that he was like, yeah, we can figure this out. And like he had been running his own startup before he started the PhD program. And he was like, yeah, you can do this. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And so um, he, he did help me a lot. And so um, I was finding projects and, and I was, you know, kind of getting my feet wet with that. But then um, I found that it was time to to leave Pittsburgh, that it wasn't what I want to be doing. I really wanted to learn from other people. And so I started looking for for other opportunities. What were those opportunities that you found? <laughs> you can take it in different directions. You don't know. So I actually interviewed at Google at that point, and they didn't want me. I didn't want them. It was a very different company at that point. But I also interviewed at Adobe. Um, and there was also essentially a pipeline from Carnegie Mellon straight here to Silicon Valley. I mean, seriously, just pull up a bus, just put the graduates on and, and bus us all out here. So there were a bunch of people who I had gone to grad school with who were at Adobe. Um, and I went to interview there, and it felt like a really nice fit. Um, I remember actually after the, the Google interview, I came home to my... Um, uh, hotel and I just turned on the Simpsons and like all I could do was just sit there and like not move. But after the Adobe interview, um, I actually, you know, it was my, uh, you know, one of my first times out here in Silicon Valley and like I went hiking. I was like, I was that inspired and that energized that um, I went hiking. I'm like, this is a sign that maybe I should, I should take this role, that this is a good role for me. We can queue up some uh, Simpsons for you after this conversation. <laughs> just, you know, just put you in a dark room. So, you know, you're, when you talk about the work that you're doing now, you're, uh, you're doing field work, you're doing ethnography, you're taking people out. When, when did you learn how to do that? That's a good question. I feel like I should credit CMU with setting me on the path and teaching me about contextual inquiry. Thank you, Bonnie John. And I think for me, one of the things that the, the told us at Carnegie Mellon is like, it's a one-year program. So if you didn't come in as a computer scientist, you're not leaving as a computer scientist. If you didn't come in as a designer, you're not leaving a designer. But we're going to give you enough you know, exposure to coding and designing and having your stuff on a wall and getting critiqued and to um, do some social science stuff. And so for me, having been an English major and I minored in art history and theology, I mean, I was as liberal arts as you could get. I wasn't going to come out as, as any of those things. And I didn't gravitate towards it. I was like, I'm not a designer. So I think I just gravitated towards research. And I think maybe the, the English degree kind of prepped me for that in terms of asking good questions and thinking about things and looking for patterns. So I think just naturally I'm a pattern seeker. Um, and I think honing my, my ability to sort of ask questions just came with time. So I, th I think it, it was having a good solid foundation and then just kind of having a natural, you know, affinity for it. So, and I read your book. <laughs> much, much later, but I did read your book. <laughs> Right. I mean, you'd been doing, by the time my book came out, you'd been doing this for a while. And can you talk about the environment at, at Adobe? Like what, what was there there to, to develop the practice of user research? You know, in, in, the, in the practitioners like yourself that are coming in with X amount of experience, what did they do well that, that let you get to the next level of your craft? I think actually um, I was really lucky at both Adobe and Google being surrounded by really smart people. So that made it okay of like, I don't know how to do this thing. Can someone help me? You know, like I learned how to do surveys through, you know, some of the really awesome people at Google. So I think for me, it was just being surrounded by really supportive people. And I think that was one of the things that was part of the culture at Adobe. Like, you know, we would go to my manager's house. She would have like all the researchers at her house and we would do these offsite. And it really felt like family. I mean, it sounds a little cheesy, but, um, and so it felt like it was a place to grow and learn. So I think for me, that was a, a great stepping stone as my first sort of real job um, after uh, graduate school to be like, oh, okay, this is what being a researcher is like. Oh, this is how you interact with, with product teams. So I think it was just learning all those basics 
But I think one of the things that, um, you know, kind of coming back to the question of, of learning to do ethnographic work and all that is once you're out, like, and especially you're probably one of one researcher, you're rarely lucky enough to work with another researcher who can sort of observe you and say like, hey, you know, why are you asking that question? Or maybe we could, you know, do it differently. One of the things that I found when I did have some opportunities at Google to work with other researchers, I'm like, we don't all have the same skills. Like what happens between you and a participant is different. And so one of the things that um, having noticed that is I started a class at Google to critique ourselves. So give researchers an opportunity to observe each other moderating and to give feedback to each other. Um, And then I wrote a Medium article about it. It's called Don't Leave Data on the Table if you want to look it up. Because I think that's one of the things too is that we don't get that critical eye anymore and we assume that like every researcher is the same and it's like, well, actually, you know, and and those things can can also creep up on us. Like I see myself all the time, especially now that I'm sort of... um, teaching other designers at my company more of like, ah, leading question, yes or no question, you know? So I find myself still doing that, even if I'm aware of it. But I think having those things pointed out to us is also really helpful too. Hey, what's the structure of the critiquing uh, class. It was a slightly different when um, I taught it externally at Kai and internally. So internally, all our videos are, are available to each other. So basically, people would send in clips from you know research that they did. We would make small groups. So let's say we were going to group of five, and we would watch a segment of somebody you know con- conducting a study. And at any point, people could stop the video and be like, "Hey, I noticed this." You know, it's like when we were actually practicing to teach it. One of my co-teachers, she was actually had her pen, and she would do a lot of like pointing and sort of like do a lot of things that indicated high status. And she's like, I never noticed that until she saw herself, until we talked about it. She wasn't aware of that body language and what it was conveying. And so basically we would spend, you know, five, 10 minutes or however, you know, the time divides up to watch that video and stop if we see anything. And we ask people to rent that idea that like, again, you know, we don't know the context of what came before. We don't know the context after, but this is what I'm noticing. And that's what we do as researchers as we notice. So, you know, it could be a pattern. It could not, but at least invite people to, to consider something that they're doing. Um, and also by seeing other people, just having that conversation, seeing it with other people and be like, okay, I didn't show that. I didn't do that in my clip, but like, I've definitely done that before too. So learning from each other as well has been really valuable. So uh, sounds like a way to keep, create kind of a safe space where it's okay to critique is that everybody's everybody's kind of up for that critique and, and, and we're all being exposed together. Is that kind of the, the way to make it make it safe to, because to, this is our workplace and now we're talking about how we're not living up to sort of the high standards of our profession. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that we tried really hard to to make it a safe space. And one of the things that we did was actually we had, spoiler alert, we have we give out like balloons, um, which are also uh, like these cords that you pull to sort of stop the production line. But just having a room full of balloons made it a little bit more fun. Um, when I taught at Kai, we had to create the videos. And so I had these little stuffed animal guys that people could put their phones on when they were doing the videos. And so then we had little stuffed animals on all the tables. And so, and also modeling it ourselves that I don't remember if we actually showed some of the videos, but we definitely told some of the stories of like, when we did this ourselves, it's like, you know, I've been a practitioner for how many years? Like, I'm still learning. I still screw this stuff up. So making ourselves vulnerable was part of making that safe space too. And also, I think what we tried to do was when we did it within Google is not have everybody who was on the same team be together. So like, it wasn't anybody that you work with directly. No, you're using, I used the phrase sort of screw this up. And I think like the pen example, and I'm sure there's others that are Clearly things we shouldn't do as researchers. 
to me, it seems like there's a certain amount of stuff that's subjective that, you know, you and I would do it differently because we're different and we have different personalities and different energies. Um, like for me, critique about that would be really interesting because I like to see how other people handle things. Um, and my question here, I guess, is, is there, does, does the critique approach look at um, alternative approaches? I guess, how do you talk about that versus best and worst practices? Yeah, I think um, we also gave an opportunity for people to stop the court on themselves, to be like, I didn't know what to do here. Like, help me brainstorm. So there's that opportunity too of like, you know, um, for the person themselves to be like, how, how will we handle this? And to hear different perspectives on there's, you know, I could have done this or I could have done this or, you know, in situations in the past, I've, you know, handled it differently. So I think having that, um, just that variety of there's not one right way to do it, that it depends on the context. And maybe sometimes somebody explains like, well, this is what happened earlier in the session. And so it led me to do it in this way. We're like, oh, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense, you know? And so I think having a little bit more of that, that context helps too. Are you able to bring any of this into the environment you're in now where, if anything, you're teaching people and leading them? Yeah, and I think um, I'm learning a lot more about uh, screwing it up also. So um, while I'm out in the field doing these um, type 1 ethnography, like I'm trying to um, help designers to be able to do their own research. And so um, one of our more junior researchers is, is actually doing one-on-one um, -on -one interviews. And so I helped and we talked about it and I wrote the, um, the discussion guide and the study plan. We talked about it and she was all on board and after the races, we went. And then I actually had a cancellation. So I was able to watch one of the sessions and I was like, oh no, I didn't, I screwed up. I didn't prepare her well enough that it was a little bit more than she could handle. And that was squarely on me, you know, that because I'm so used to doing it, it becomes so naturally to me that I didn't recognize that she was in a different space and she would need a different level of support and that I just hadn't prepared her. And so we role played a little bit and, and we practiced a little bit, but I still feel like, I, I feel guilty. I'm like, she's got more sessions this week and like, I don't know if she's really prepared. So I think it, that part is on me as well to make sure that the things that I'm modeling, the things that um, I'm sort of teaching are doable for where the designers are and not just, you know, hey, it's easy. Anybody can do this. I don't know. My opinion, there's some things in life that we do that we maybe learn more from screwing up than we do by succeeding. Uh, I don't know what falls into that category and what doesn't. I don't know. I mean, I, I wonder if as much as you feel for this person and feel responsible for them, I wonder just alternate perspective. Did you set them up for a lot of learning they might not have otherwise got to by yeah, seeing the edges of kind of what they're able to control or what they're able to execute on? I can't speak for her. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we hit a dead end. Um, <clears throat> let's see what other questions I have written for you here. What, uh, yeah, if we were to have this conversation again in a year, two years, what kinds of things would you uh, want to talk about that you would have achieved in this organization? I hope that there's less sort of friction that I think we're already like starting to see the, the, the seeds of it that, you know, product managers who've been at the company for a long time are saying like, oh, I'm doing this new thing. You know, I need user research. They don't know what it is. They don't know why exactly, but they're sort of like, it's a good thing generally. So I think to have more of that, honestly, I think like some of the things that are more well, boring, kind of more infrastructure stuff, like I hate recruiting. I'm a terrible recruiter. I'm terrible with like time zones and like, you know, all those details, that type of stuff. So like, I'd love to have a recruiter. I'd love to have another researcher on board. Um, and some of the things that uh, I feel like I, I have a... Um, 
a great success under my belt that it looks like we're moving away from um, NPS, Net Promoter Score, hooray. Um, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so, um, and moving towards um, satisfaction, but, you know, asking satisfaction questions and how often we're going to do that. And, you know, that's a really interesting thing that I've been thinking about is, um, can we pop that up in an app? I mean, this is an app that people use for health. Like they might be having a low blood sugar, you know, um, they aren't, you know, this is a stressful time that people are using the app. Like nobody's excited about managing their diabetes. And so to pop up something in the app and be like, how are we doing? You know, that's not the right thing. So I haven't figured out like how we might introduce those satisfaction questions and when is the right time to do those things. But at least moving away from uh, net promoter and to asking the satisfaction questions and asking that on a regular cadence so that we can see over time and like, are we getting better and kind of what the trajectory is? Um, I think that would be a huge thing to have accomplished as well. That's a great note to end it on. So thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Okay, that was the end of the interview on stage. And now here's the remainder of our conversation. Welcome back, Marianne. Thank you. It's the bonus track, huh? Right. This is the director's cut version of the the podcast. Uh, so one of the questions I wanted to follow up with you on is, um, you know, you talked about you know the work you're doing on the the type two and the type one, and really trying to drive change in the organization. Um, I'm wondering, sort of, you know, tactically or practically, what are ways to bring those experiences that patients have into the organization itself? I think actually one of the the most fundamental ways that it started is using our app itself. And so um, I don't have diabetes myself, but for the first two weeks that I was, or first couple of weeks I was at Gluco, I sat down with our certified diabetes educator and we pretended that I had just been diagnosed. And so she talked me through what somebody would hear, how they would be introduced to pricking their finger, measuring their blood glucose. And so I spent two weeks and I logged all the food that I ate, all the um, exercise that I did. I measured my blood glucose, you know, twice a day just to get that experience of what it was like. And like, yeah, it was pretty crappy to even after a couple of days to you know, prick your finger and to imagine that that's for the rest of your life. Like I, I had the luxury of stopping. And so for me, it was a really small way to, to understand what it was like for somebody that was newly diagnosed with diabetes to, to do that. Um, and I also presented that back to the team and I sort of um, encouraged other people to try it. And so we instituted a program. And so anybody who starts at Gluco now can get a blood glucose you know, meter and to try it out themselves and to see what that experience is like. So it's one small way to, to at least start building that empathy. Are there others that you want to describe? Yeah, actually, so um, I wrote a Medium article about um, different ways to, to build empathy when working in health tech. So one of them was experiencing yourself. So, so actually to, to try the app and try measuring your blood glucose all the time. Um, see for yourself. So when we did the ethnographic visits to bring people out so they could actually talk to and, and see people and listen to others. So um, some people that I work with actually do have diabetes. And so I want to hear their stories. Um, so we started uh, something called Life with Diabetes Storytelling. And so it's just a couple of folks um, each time and they'll either tell their own story of how they were diagnosed and what it was like or some people have um, children who are, have diabetes and that whole experience or some people have parents who, um, who have diabetes. It humanizes it even further because these are people that we actually work with. So it's one thing to visit somebody's home and you never see that stranger again, but these people that we, you know, we see all the time and, you know, we think nothing of, of somebody, um, you know, at the lunch counter or lunch table pricking their finger and taking their blood glucose or pulling up their, their shirt and dosing insulin right at the table. Like that's just kind of what happens. And to ask those questions and, you know, making it um, okay to ask like, well, when did you tell your wife? And, and you know, what is it like to do sports and, and kind of do those things that you used to do. So it's been a really great way to create empathy and, and 
even bond as a team to hear each other's stories. And we put them up all on websites. So people who start new can watch the videos themselves and, and um, learn about people people's stories. And what's what's the, the format is videos? Are there other materials that are like, yeah, well, I guess describe what this looks like. I was a little ambitious at first. I was like, we're going to have three people who speak once a month. And I realized the company's not that big. And, and a lot of people actually don't want to talk. And even I was encouraging people to, even if um, you don't have diabetes, you don't know anyone with diabetes, like there's lots of this stuff on the internet, like watch some videos, read some people's blogs, like bring that in. Haven't had any takers on that yet. Um, so... Now, kind of what we're doing is we just have two speakers and we do about every other month. I just give people the floor. I say, you've got, you know, 15, 20 minutes. Tell your story. Some people take less time. Some people are a little bit more hams. They t- you know take a little bit more time. But all I'm doing is giving them the floor, just creating that space. And it's been wildly popular. Like engineers will come, like people, we actually fill the room where it is. So it's just an opportunity for people to tell their story. And I also wanted to make it a little bit special. So the JDRF has these little bears called Rufus the Bear that teach kids who are diagnosed, like how to, you know, do their insulin and all that. And so I'm like, I'm riffing off that. So I have these little bears that I give people after they speak. And it says, you know, dear so-and-so, thanks for sharing a diabetes story. And so it's personalized and people sit them on their desks so that when you walk around, you can see who shared a, a story. So I want to make it a little special like, yeah, thanks for sharing. And we know who whose stories are out there too. So maybe a different question, uh, following up on some of the things we talked about earlier, you know, thinking of, we talked about, you know, how you learned research and, you know, kind of your process through these different environments that you were in. You know, at this point, do you, uh, you know, do you have a superpower? I think my superpower is complexity busting. So I think that based on what I'm hearing, and I think sometimes qualitative research gets poo-pooed a little bit, but I found that being able to suss out those patterns from just a few interviews and turn that into a robust framework of, you know, I did a thing when I worked at Google around ads and like, what what are the characteristics of an ad? And that framework is still being used. And so some of the things I'm doing now in terms of persona research or developing personas and also um, the bingo card framework of the needs of people with diabetes. So there's a couple of columns, there's a couple of rows and people have different needs and you sort of fill it out um, individually. Those types of things that lead to action and sort of like synthesizing, encapsulating, like here's the things you need to know. Like I've, I've thought about it and I've taken all this chaos and I've put it into something that's usable and, and actionable that the teams can use. And I think that's one of the things that really makes me happy when I figure something out and then turn it into a product that the team is like, aha, we can run with it. This is actually useful for making decisions. Right. I think there's those two pieces are really interesting because I'm with you on the finding patterns rapidly and being able to tell a new story about them. But I, I think you're productizing them and, and communicating some kind of communication design around them so that other people can understand that. I think that's, that's two superpowers in one, maybe the way you're describing it. Yeah. You know, do you have a way of thinking about your own brand, your own identity as someone that, you know, as a researcher or as someone that works in tech, works in these kinds of spaces? How do you think about yourself that way? I think for for a long time, I thought I'm sort of like like everybody else and like we're all sort of doing the, the same things. And I have an opportunity now. I'm part of the, this incubator for women leaders. Uh, and it's having me sort of rethink what is my brand and that like one needs to have a brand. I think I also maybe started thinking about it when I ha- started having my own consulting practice. And I'm like, how do I stand out? And like, what, what do I offer? And how do I package these superpowers and kind of bring that to the fore? So, and part of this incubator that I'm in, it, it's just, started somewhat recently. But the women who are in it, like, it's not just people who are in tech. I think a lot of us are in tech, but we have like a doctor and we have some lawyers and we have some other people who are doing other things. And so it's great to 
be with that different community. And so one of the things that we did in our first session was really think about ourselves as a company. It's like we all work for companies. We're all like, what's the vision statement? What's the mission statement of your company? You've done SWOT analysis. So we're turning that lens on ourselves. And so part of our homework for this month is is to figure that out. Um, And I think one of the things that I was thinking about is my mission is really user-centered everything, that user-centered stuff can be applied to any domain. And having worked in, you know, finance and wildland firefighting and um, consumer stuff and with creative professionals, I think I've seen it there, but that's all been within tech, but really applied to things outside of tech. So, you know, it can be applied to parenting, it can be applied to government, it can be applied to just a lot of different things. Like, in fact, uh, I joined a gym recently, it's called Nine Round Kickboxing, and I realized how user-centered they are. So, (laughs) got to riff on this for a little bit. So, some insights somebody had along the way was people don't want to spend a lot of time at the gym. They want to go at any time they want to. They don't want to wait for a particular class. And they like the special attention from uh, a trainer. So what does nine round offer? You can literally go at any time. There's nine rounds that you do in order, but you can start as soon as you get there. Each round is three minutes. So you're done in 30 minutes. And it's one of these high intensity workouts. And there's a trainer there who can like help you and, and spar with you at, at particular moments. And I'm like, this is a fabulous, you know, example of being user centered, of really understanding what your customers need. And I was like, I signed up for the year. I'm like, done. This is exactly, I'm your target user. You figured out my needs and, and this is fantastic. So thinking a lot more about human-centered everything and how can we apply that to domains and sort of just everyday life because when things are human-centered, it's it's more humane. Is there a, is there a source or a reference or an inspiration for that, that, that human label kind of on what you're looking at? I think it came from having worked in a lot of different domains. I think what really crystallized it for me was um, I read a book called More Human by Steve Hilton, and he's married to Silicon Valley exec, but he was in uh, the UK and then he moved here and he's like, went to, you know, started hanging out at Stanford and, and uh, came upon design thinking. And he's like, aha, all these things I've been doing, thinking about policy and um, applying it to business and all these things. And so he really crystallized and I'm like, yeah, that's... That's I be, I believe that. Like, what if our businesses were more focused that way? And what if like the policy of how do we get rid of homelessness actually like prototyped first rather than just spending tons of money and, and you know, doing a particular project for five years? Um, so I think he really captured that, that human-centered everything. So as you think about that as your brand, what... Um now, how are you going to operationalize that brand? Use a terrible phrase, but you know that's a. How does this go beyond a concept for you? What do you think you're going to be doing? So I think it's something that that um, I've been doing in terms of mentoring, like working with entrepreneurs. So when I left Google. I was sort of exploring two paths was more mission oriented something or other and the entrepreneur um, side of everything. So right now my full-time job is much more in that mission um, mission driven kind of uh, aspect of it. But I've also been doing um, mentoring for entrepreneurs. I'm mentoring um, a woman venture for America right now. I've, I've done kind of office hours for um, a bunch of things I've taught at NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. And so I think those are ways where I can find different ways to apply it and find ways that, how do you find um, interpreters and entrepreneurs to give them the tools to be able to, to ask questions and go out and talk to users to apply it in a lot of different ways that is a way to make that happen. And so I think that for me, whether it's my full-time job or, or kind of like the balance of those things may change in the future. So maybe I'll be spending more time, I'll find a role that lets me do it more of that working with entrepreneurs and help, helping them develop that and maybe less of mission-oriented stuff or maybe I'll be able to find ways to combine the two. But I think for me, in sort of the next phase, it's, it's kind of how do I find the overlap or sort of, you know, finding the balance of those two things. You know, the the sort of the, the thesis of, of this podcast is around, I don't know, thesis, but just the people we want to have as guests are 
people who are user research types. And I'm wondering, as you describe this, this sort of uh, human-centered everything and these kind of uh, mentorship roles, is are you being a researcher as the way you would define it in in doing that work? Like, how does and we have labels, and so I want to ask you to kind of unpack the labels um, and see how what you're sort of framing on this work you're exploring versus maybe the work that connects you and I and why we're having this conversation. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think for me, it's, I think once I get sort of like hot under the collar about something, like everything else goes out the window. So, you know, I was talking earlier about um, once I found Gluca and I'm like, wow, they're working on a really big, juicy problem. This is something I want to do. Who cares what the actual label is or what, what the, you know, the title is. So I think for me, like it really bothers me when people, smart people go out and build things and spend a lot of time and energy to build things that are not for humans. And I'm like, why didn't they do that? So I think for me, it's it's more about empowering people who have that energy and who have that entrepreneurial spirit to make the things that are right. So not just make stuff, but actually make the right thing. So for me, it's a set of skills that I think maybe everybody should have. And maybe once everybody has those skills and can do it well, maybe the role of researcher doesn't need to exist. But until then, you know, it, it, I feel like it's my duty to go out and, and spread the gospel, as it were, of this is how you talk to users. This is how the type of information you can get. These are types of things that you can't get and the limitations of the things that we can do as well. All right. It's a really articulate and lovely reminder of why we do research. It's what we're trying to have happen. And you're looking at achieving that goal through research or through mentorship or through advocacy and all the things that you're doing are yeah putting stuff out in the world that helps people that I don't want to put, and now I'm putting a lot of words in your mouth, but um, there's kind of a, a producing of things ideal that you are a champion of. So I see research as, as you explained it, I see research as a part of that, but not the only one. I think you summed that up really nicely. <laughs> so thank you for making me sound more articulate. <laughs> That's the reflecting back technique. <laughs> Okay, so now um, maybe wrapping up our, our our epilogue. Anything to add in this? Any anything I should have asked you about? I was just thinking another user centered everything. Um, I'm uh, doing some volunteering and working with um, a foster child. And I've been able to turn that into a user-centered thing too, that um, because she doesn't live with me, I just see her for a few hours each week. Um, so I think very intently about the activities I'm going to do. And being a crafty person also, I have spent a lot of time on YouTube videos and Pinterest and whatnot and making activities that I'm like, well, we got to work on like fine motor skills. We got to work on like counting or matching and stuff like that. And I'm having such a great time designing these little activities for her and also seeing how she responds and like, oh, she doesn't like those types of things or she needs more of these types of things. Um, so I feel like uh, bringing it to, like, I think I just naturally bring it to all aspects of my life and, and I see the power that, that it has. And I just feel I'm like, I just need to be a champion for this thing because I see the value of it and I just want the world to know. It's a lovely note to wrap up on. So thank you so much, Marianne. Thank you so much. Well, that wraps up this episode of Dollars to Donuts. Go to portugal.com slash podcast for the transcript as well as links for this episode. You can follow us on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast at portugal.com or iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or any place excellent podcasts are distributed. My books are available at Amazon and rosenfeldmedia.com. The amazing theme music was written and performed by Bruce Todd.